Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor that is due your name, Lord. We love you and we praise you. We look forward to what you have to say to us, Lord. Your word is living and active. You say it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between the soul and the spirit. It's a light into our path. It's food for our soul. It breaks up our fallow ground. It's a mirror. Thank you for your word. I pray now as we come to your word, Lord, we would be open to receive everything that you have for us, Lord. I pray that we would grow in grace. I pray, Lord, that we would understand and know, Lord, that your word is transformative and it's the answer, Lord. You want to speak truth to our hearts, Lord, so may your truth set us free from whatever it is that is holding us back or holding us captive, Lord. We pray that you would do this work by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before you sit down, can you say hello to someone or two? All right, you may be seated, everybody. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, please go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Luke chapter 8. And uh, we're going to draw our attention to the section of Scripture from verses 19 to 25 this morning. While you're turning there, uh, a few announcements and just some things to make you aware of. Uh, October 1st here at the Morning service, we're having a guest speaker, Jay Warner Wallace, Cold Case Christianity. Uh, He's going to be speaking here. And uh, so if you don't know who he is, he's a a well-known author, apologetic um, person, and he was a homicide detective in uh, Los Angeles and uh, came to Christ by applying his cold case homicide techniques to seeing if the Bible is true or not. So we're looking forward to that. He's going to be at the men's retreat the day before. So our men's retreat is going to be at the end of the month, um, Saturday, September 31st, I think it is, whatever last Saturday is of the month, 30th. Okay, thank you. And then um, please keep in prayer the women as they go on their retreat starting this Thursday. And they'll be back Saturday uh, afternoon, evening. But please keep them in prayer that the Lord would minister to them and keep them safe. And there would be spiritual breakthroughs. And um, so uh, Wednesday night, uh, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 8, if you want to read ahead for that. And then the last thing is... And um, so with that, we're in the book of Luke, chapter 8. We're looking at this section of Scripture where we left off last week with Jesus speaking about the Word of God, the importance of the Word of God. And we ended with Him saying, Take heed how you hear. In other words, as He had taught right before that about the parable of the sowers, uh, the sower and the seeds, he was sort of distinguishing different soils that are variable, 
where the sower and the seed are not variable. And he explained that as if God is the one sowing the seed, and he does that through people oftentimes, and the seed is the word of God, those don't change. The seed, the word of God has within it all the spiritual life that is necessary for one to know God, to have a relationship with God, but yet not everybody will and not everybody does because we are the soil and every soil is different. Our soil is our inner person. He mentioned four soils. Only one out of the four soils is a soil that hears the word of God and actually accepts it, receives it, puts their faith in it, and the result is there is spiritual fruit or spiritual things that come out of that person's life. And so at the end of that, he says, so take heed, or in other words, watch yourself how you listen. This parable suggests to us that in a room like this, the word of God that we're going to be looking at will be going out and there will be different responses. There will be some who push it away, some who accept it a little bit, but when it starts to uh, cause conflict with one's own will or conflict with one's lifestyle or things like that, then they'll push it away. So all these different responses, but it's interesting because as Jesus is explaining these things to a larger group of people, he wants that larger group of people to really take serious how they're hearing the word of God and to really be introspective to the extent of when you hear the word of God, are you hearing it with a desire to do it, a desire to submit to it, to be obedient to it? And so he's continuing with that discussion and that thought, at least the, the way Luke, Luke's not always in his gospel chronological like the other gospels are. He fits things in according to what he wants to convey. And so in this section of scripture now, he begins to speak about how the word of God affects certain people and the importance of faith, exercising our faith when it comes to the Word of God. And so we're going to sort of develop that as we look through this section of Scripture. So it really begs the question that we all have to really think and, and be honest with ourselves in regards to faith, our own faith. Do we have faith? What, what is faith? And is my faith a saving faith? Is it a biblical faith? Here, Jesus not only wants them to have saving faith, but then he wants them to understand that then this saving faith will become developed after we're saved to the believer to the extent where the believer will understand and recognize how important faith is. So if you're a believer, think about the value that you place on faith. How important is it to you? How important it is, uh, is faith to you in regards to a lot of the other things that are in your life. The Bible gives us a, a picture that for the spiritual person, for the person who knows God, faith is the most important thing for that person. It's the most valuable thing. And so one should set their 
heart and their mind to growing in this faith that God has for us. It reminds me of my uh, father-in-law is a metal worker. He is a welder. And it reminds me of just uh, this process of, of metal and how metal is worked or forged to be useful, to be beautiful, to be strong, and to be something that is extremely valuable. So there's uh, three steps that you can kind of see, and I think the analogy is amazing when we think about God forging our faith. So what happens, actual word forge means to shape by heating, beating, and hammering. So I think that's a good description of how our faith is shaped. So one takes a raw piece of metal material and they put it in a fire and and heat it to very, very hot temperatures to the extent where in many cases it's almost translucent. You can almost see through it. That heat makes that metal moldable. And that's like what happens to a believer. We often find ourselves in places of testing. And these places of testing can be compared to heat. So we get put in places to where God is making us more desperate for Him, more available to Him. Uh, These certain circumstances can make us more attuned to Him. And that's like the heat of God's trials that give us the ability to be molded and shaped. And then the hammering process comes. The the hammering, and uh, so the heated metal is held by uh, an instrument, and then they begin to hit it. And when they hit it, it's, it's not important just to smack it. It's important that the accuracy, that's where sort of the artistry comes in in metalworking. And that's what God does when he begins to hammer us into shape, hammer us into a way where we look more like him and less like the world. He forms and shapes us through this heat and through this beating, but this this beating is, is shaping us and molding us into his workmanship that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. And then they dip it in water, and that is called quenching, and that's what makes the metal strong after it's molded and shaped. It sets it. But the thing that's interesting about this is it's a process. So they go through this several times because the, the metal will start to cool down, and then they'll put it and set it a little bit, and then they'll put it back in the heat, and they'll keep going through this. All this is a perfect description of how God develops our faith. So when we think about faith, we have to look at it from two aspects or two things. One is saving faith. So that's the beginning. So God, because he so loved the world and that he doesn't want anybody to perish, God will orchestrate situations to get our attention. God will put often roadblocks in our way. He'll often remove distractions that we don't see as distractions, but they're things like idols that we worship and we put so much significance and importance on that it obscures our view 
of God. And in this working of God, in His sovereignty, we have choices along the way to where we can deny God and do our own thing, or we can heed what's going on and get to a place where we recognize and say, what I'm doing is not working. And I'm tired. The Bible says it's, it's hard to kick against the goads. What that means is, if you're an ox and you're being driven by your owner to plow a field and you don't want to do it and you're rebellious, you're going to keep kicking and you're going to not do what the farmer wants you to do, to plow. And so you're going to stop and he's going to prod you with this little stick that has sort of little sharp ends to it and you're going to kick back against it. And that's a a great analogy or picture of, of what it's like when we just kick against the goads. We kick against God and what He wants for our, our life. But man, it is, an, it is a, a true miracle when one comes to saving faith in Christ. And when one's eyes are open and the revelation and the understanding of Jesus Christ becomes real and, and one embraces that and accepts that, and the Bible, Bible says that when, when that happens, genuinely, that a person is different or transformed on the inside. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 uh, says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things are passed away and all things are made new. So we're born again. John chapter 3 describes it that way. We're born again. And that's what saving faith is. If one truly has saving faith, their sins are forgiven. They're washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. If one truly has saving faith, they are given a down payment. And that's the Holy Spirit, which is the seal that eventually when they die, they will be with God forever in heaven. The miraculous thing, there's nothing more miraculous in my opinion than one who truly becomes a born-again Christian, truly becomes saved. They are a child of God. And then when that happens, here's what happens with a lot of people. They think that's the end. And it's really just the beginning. If one is truly saved, that begins their life in Christ. That doesn't end their life in Christ. It begins that new creation begins to blossom, begins to grow like a a newborn baby that craves milk. A newborn Christian will crave the Word of God. They'll crave to be with Christ. They'll crave to be with the believers in Christ. They'll crave to share the forgiveness that they've experienced with other people. There's a whole new thing going on. It's radical. And this then is where Jesus starts to nail his point across the importance of not saving faith here, of forging a faith that can stand in the world strongly against all opposition. The Bible says that in the the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 
the world is difficult, it's hard. And for the believer, it's difficult and hard because it's not our home. And so we long for our home. But we understand that while we're here, our purpose is given to us by God to bear fruit for His kingdom, to be His ambassadors or representatives here. And so we have a purpose, we have a a God-given plan for our life that as we walk in faith that we fulfill, but there's so many distractions and there's so many difficulties to do that. And that's why when we get saved, God goes to work to strengthen and forge our faith so that we will be unshakable and unflappable in this world. And what we're going to look at today, one of the participants in this story was a man who had very shaky faith. But when he got saved, Jesus changed his name to Rock. And that's Peter. And Peter was very emotional. He was driven by his feelings, his uh, old understanding of how things were. And this same Peter, later, this... Shaky, at one point, Jesus-denying disciple of Jesus, who Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, too, as he was influenced by Satan to say things against the plan of God. He later wrote this. In regards to trials, he said that we should greatly rejoice in them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. So his view changed. And this is what happens when we grow in maturity in our faith. So another example is like a baby. What do babies do on into toddlerhood? It's all about them. But then when you hope, when they get older and grow and mature, they start to realize or at least think it's not all about them. Maybe it's a little bit about other people too. And then they become teenagers and it's back all about them again. But then you hope they grow and understand because that's sort of what maturity does. But faith is really radical like that. Because what, what faith does is that it understands a much bigger picture And it sees a much bigger plan than the particular thing that one is going through at the moment. And so this is Peter, he understood this. So Peter was told before Jesus died and rose again, as he was following Jesus, he was he was told that he would suffer. And what was going to happen to him was told by Jesus. That, that he would be killed as a martyr even before his ministry got going. But see, how can one hear those words? How can one say, if, if I told you, if, if you commit your life to Christ today, you're going to be killed pretty soon because of your faith. Would it, would it be the same response? Or would it be, no way. 
But see, that's what, what Peter was faced. We kind of get an understanding of why that would be a, a difficult thing to follow Jesus. All the disciples, except for John, were killed for their faith, and they tried to kill John for his faith, and it didn't work. So he, he said about these trials, he, he said, greatly rejoice. So just think about that mentality. Think about someone that has, has gotten an understanding to where we, one may look like the world is caving in, and he would tell you, this is, I'm so happy. Everything is caving in. And I'm going to die pretty soon. And it's going to be a death of crucifixion upside down. Count it all joy. It really puts things in perspective. That has to arrest our attention, at least. So, you know, you read things like that, and you, you can sort of just have this, like, comic book figure thought about it like these are comic book heroes and they're you know superheroes and things like that they're different than us but the bible goes to great lengths to show us that the disciples were exactly like us in other words nothing special they're purposely chosen because of their lack of specialness and he, he says hey in regards to trials, you're all going through trials. I know you are. In regards to those trials, you should greatly rejoice. That can almost seem uh, offensive. I mean, can, can you imagine, you know, going through a very difficult time and somebody telling you, that's awesome. <laughs> they give you that call and you're like, you, can't, you haven't slept for like a month because you're so worried and crying for a month, and, and, and the person says, they call you up and say, hey, man, that's awesome. You're going, oh, greatly rejoice. <laughs> but that's the biblical perspective of that. What are we to make of this? He, he, he gives us a few things that are helpful about trials. He says they're for a little while, so that's good. That's helpful to know that whatever this particular thing we're going through is not going to be forever. Sometimes we think that I'm never going to get out of this. It's never going to change. But here's something interesting. Think about the disciples. Could we say, hey, Peter, if you just write it out on the other side of that, God is going to do double in your life. He's going to bless you with double money, double kids like Job, double uh, fruitfulness in your fisher business or whatever. It, he, he, none of that. None of the disciples were able to have that. And, you know, the thing is that does happen, and that did happen to Job. That, so Job... God allowed him to be tested, and he went through it, and it was really difficult and painstaking. And then at the end, God gave him double what he had before he went through the trial. So sometimes we think, oh, man, if I just weather the storm, at the end of that, it's going to be double, maybe triple. I'll get a double portion or something. It's going to be way better. And sometimes it is. A lot of times it is. But it might not be. 
What if all of that is just in heaven? If you read through the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it says they look for their reward. Like they didn't get any of this, this stuff here. Nothing here. And it went through all these different people. And it said they look for their reward. They look for a land whose builder and maker was God. So it was all there. It was all in the future. It was all something that wasn't going to happen in this world. So that's really, that really says that we need to, at least for me, this is what I've been going through as I've gone through this text, is that I just realized how small my view of life is and how little my view of heaven is. And at the end of the book of Job, it's interesting. We just went through that. If you are reading your one-year Bible, we just finished Job last week. And I find it interesting at the end, it basically is, is, is Job saying, like, you, there, there's, I, I can't understand the things you're doing. He's, he said that they're too wonderful for me to understand. Admitting that what he went through, much of his pain was trying to understand it and trying to figure it out. And God tells him, Look, the only thing you can do when you go through these trials is to have faith because you can't understand all the things I'm doing. But you know what we can do? We can trust all the things that God's doing. We can look at Job and realize and understand that there's a much bigger thing happening and this thing that's happening is beyond me and it's beyond this world even. And it's not just about me, it's affecting a lot of other people too. I mean, think about Peter, for example. Think about what he went through and how it's affecting us 2,000 years later. So this is why this is so significant. And this is why this is, uh, to me, just something that's just really easy to gloss over. But you know what? I, I would say a lot of uh, people talk today about the decline of Christianity in our country, and that's very true. And it's, the prospects are, are not very good. And we have examples of that in Europe. They're a little bit ahead of us, and we can see where we're headed. But in the midst of all of this, we understand that God is working out this big grand plan. And that there is much more that meets the eye. And so what we can do is we can't understand everything that's going on, but what, what we can do, can do is know as we read our Bible, we can see the importance of our faith while we engage the world. And the talk about in many uh, Christian circles is the problem with Christianity is just ignorance of the word of God. And that's absolutely true. But I want to just also add that it's the naivety of Christianity in regards to understanding the need for the development of their faith and how that happens. Our faith is so important 
that Peter recognized, hey, if you're getting an opportunity for your faith to grow, you should greatly rejoice. But no, it's, it's just going to be for a little while because there's a purpose to it. And when your faith has grown to the extent where God wants it and knows it needs to be, then you won't be going through that particular trial, those trials, he described it as grieving. So he acknowledges the pain of trials, the pain of this life. He describes it as grieving. And whenever we try to paint a a more rosy picture of the world, we're going to be disappointed. And then he says, these trials, they'll be various. Amen? So there's one consistent here for the body of Christ in its trials. But the thing that's different is if, if we were to talk to one another, there's different trials for each one of us. But they're, they're the same, but they're individualized and different. So Satan has certain things. He just has a limited arsenal. But he's able to use his limited arsenal arsenal individually to each one of us to where we think we are the only ones going through this horrible, terrible thing and nobody else can understand it. That's part one of the strategies that he has. So Paul, uh, Peter says they're various, they're grieving, but then he tells us the purpose of that is that the genuineness, what's that? The purity of our faith. So that's what's actually happening. How about this? If this is for believers, if you're a Christian, if you're truly born again, this is for you. Whatever you're going through right now, that's hard and difficult, is a trial where God wants to develop your faith. What if you looked at what you're going through like that? That's that's what the Bible tells us. And then the purpose of it is so that you will have genuine faith, which means that through these trials like that, that metal that's shaped through heat and beaten, that through the trial, you will realize there are things that you're trusting in that are not of God. And had you not gone through the trial, you would have never realized that. But I'm being very careful here because I want to take my time. This is extremely important. You and me and the body of Christ will be greatly stunted to the point of ineffectiveness if we do not submit to this process of God growing our faith, we will become superficial and no good for the world. We will become like the world. We will be no different. We will handle our struggles the same. We will handle hardship the same. We will be no different as a person who does not have the Holy Spirit, is not a child of God, and is not forgiven. That's why God sees it as so important. So the the question is, and are we submitting 
to the process that's grievous and painful and acknowledging that this is an opportunity and a trial that God has given me so that my faith can grow. And if my faith is growing through this, then I can rejoice because that's what's really important. Our comfort is not more important than our faith. And when we have comfort, our faith is often not developed and not growing. This lengthy introduction is purposeful because I feel like we're on the pulse of the problem of weak Christianity, faith-light Christianity, minimal Christianity that's hard to recognize in the Bible. And I believe each one of us now are going through a very difficult thing. Different degrees of that. And are we going to look at what we're going through as an opportunity to grow our faith and be the person that God wants us to be? Or are we going to continue on a cycle of doing our own thing? of looking for worldly answers and solutions, of trying to get out of the heat, get out of the difficulty, and continue in a cycle of faithlessness or superficial faith. These are the things that Jesus is driving home. And it was important for me to explain that because this section of Scripture for a lot of you is familiar. And there's so many things that we can miss. But if we, we understand as we go into this, what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples and how radical of a desire God has for us to grow in our faith, we will see that God is willing to go to great lengths to develop our faith. So verse 19. Luke chapter 8. So then his mother and his brothers came to him. And they could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to see you. So basically, Jesus has been collecting a large group of people as he goes around the area of the Sea of Galilee and he's doing miracles and he's preaching and, and more people start following him, including his disciples. But Jesus also called the large group of people other than the 12 disciples because they were just learners. Not all of them were going to follow Jesus. Many of them would actually leave when he said things that they didn't like. And that's why Jesus taught the parable of the soils or the seeds in, with them because he's telling them, look, all of you are following me, but not all of you are going to re remain with me. So as, he, as he's teaching, he's in 
a house and there's a lot of people around him. And it says his mother and his brothers, they come and most likely they are worried about him. And they wanted to help him. His popularity grew so much, he was often tired, he often didn't eat. People around him, thronging him all the time. And they also thought he was a little crazy. And so they came sort of to rescue him. But they couldn't get in because there were so many people around Jesus inside this house. And so they sent somebody to tell Jesus, hey, your mother and brothers are here. And you, you could imagine that uh, they would think that he would stop what he's doing immediately and rush to see his mother and brothers. It's, it's, it's interesting that, that he had brothers too because there's a teaching that Mary was perpetual virgin. And it's just, he had brothers. But here we see, this is so radical. Here we see the priority of Jesus. In verse 21, it says, He answered and he said to them. So here's the teaching. This is what Jesus does. He, he teach or taught. And then he demonstrated what he taught. So he, he said, here's, here's what I want you to tell him. My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. What is he saying? Is that rude of Jesus? Is he being mean? Is he ignoring his family? What he, what he is doing is establishing priority. He's establishing priority. And the work that he was doing and teaching and bringing the kingdom of God to those ears who were hearing him, at that moment could not be stopped and he wouldn't stop it. You may recall earlier when Jesus was a young boy and he went to Jerusalem with his parents to celebrate the Passover and they journeyed from Galilee to Jerusalem and then they're traveling home and Jesus wasn't with them and they panicked because they're in a big caravan of people from their hometown and they got about a day's out and they're like, where's Jesus? What happened to Jesus? Where's Jesus? So they had to go back to Jerusalem and there was Jesus in the synagogue. And he was a, a teenager, and he's just blowing them away, uh, the synagogue rulers and leaders with his knowledge and his uh, understanding of things. And he said, I must be about my father's business. In other words, setting a priority. But what Jesus is saying here is that, there, that he has a spiritual family. And he's even saying that a spiritual family is more important than a biological family. Now, if you have a biological family that's your spiritual family, take a moment right now and thank the Lord for that. Because I know many of you have a biological family and they're not your spiritual family. And you hurt. You have pain. It's hard. It's difficult. And don't give up praying. But Jesus is saying, what's the most important is my spiritual family. But here's, here's the teaching. He said, it's those, his spiritual family are those who hear the word of God, but then they do it. 
And that was the whole thing. This is the whole thing that he was saying. He was trying to get us to understand that it's, it's not saving faith to just hear the word. Coming to church will not save you. Coming to a biblical church will not save you. Saving faith is characterized by a faith that puts their belief in God resting in His plan and His will to the extent where then one obeys the Word of God and does the things that God says. That's what saving faith looks like. Now, we have to be careful because what we do does not save us. Our works do not save us. But in James 2.18, James says it like this, I'll show you my faith by my works. So let's be very clear about that. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by putting our trust and our faith in what Christ has done and the result of saving faith in is that it brings about spiritual fruit. And that's what Jesus is saying. And that's what Jesus is making really clear is he, he expresses, look, my family, someone who's truly a child of God, someone who is a, a spiritual Jew, if you will, is someone who hears the word, they receive it like the soil, and out of their life, there's fruit that starts to come out of their life. There's spiritual fruit. So that's the teaching. So as, as our faith is forged, it starts with teaching, but it doesn't end with teaching. The teaching then works itself out in the doing. And that's what we see next. Look at verse 22. So then the teaching ends up in the testing. So after Jesus teaches, he says in verse 22, he says it, it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. The key to this account is one word, with. Jesus got into the boat with his disciples. Why is that significant? The disciples would know scriptures like Isaiah 41.10, which says, Fear not, for I am with you. Like Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So they would know scriptures like that. So as they're traveling with Jesus, large groups of people around them, now that large group of people gets down to a small group of people. And Jesus is launching out in a boat with them. And the key is to know that he is with them. The key for us to grow in our faith when we're hit with very difficult trials is to know that he is with us in the trial. He has not 
forsaken us. He has not forgotten us. He is not unaware. But to know He's with us in the trial. And so as they get into this boat, He says to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. So that's the second significant point that we need to understand when we go through trials is not only is Jesus with us, but then his word will always be accomplished. So what's happening? His disciples are learning something. Jesus, he knows what his disciples are going to end up going through. And so he knows what they need in order to successfully go through what they go through in the future. That's why they're there with him. Because they're not ready for those things. But they're going to get ready. Their faith is being forged, and that's why Jesus is saying what he's saying and doing what he's doing, because it's about their faith. It's all about their faith. And so it's interesting because when we have faith, and we exercise obedience, we will often find that God leads us into a storm. God's leading them there, right? He's the one leading them. So if we have an understanding, if, if I become a Christian, God's going to lead me away from the storm and everything's going to be easier, that's not correct. Why? God loves us too much to not let our faith develop. So he sees us, he sees what's ahead, and he says, hey, look, I'm going to give you opportunities to develop your faith. Jeremiah 5.12, really good scripture, jot it down. I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, if you are not able to run with the footmen, how can you run with the horses? In other words, if you are not able to apply your faith now with what you're going through, how are you going to be applying your faith later when maybe something more difficult happens? So now's the time where you're preparing for what the future is. And it's through that trial. So faith is ends up in action and obedience. And that obedience often leads us into a storm. So in verse 23, it says, As they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep. And I believe that was part of the testing. Because what's being tested here? This is so insightful. What's being tested? Two things. We mentioned them already. One, Jesus is with them. Two, he said, let's go to the other side. So those two things are what Jesus wants them to have their faith in. That he's with them and that he said they're going to get to the other side. Now this is what Jesus is saying to all of us. He's with us, and we're going to get through it. We're going to get to the other side. He's telling all of us that. But he has to test our faith. 
Is that enough for us, that he's with us and that his word declared that he's going to get us to the other side or whatever it may be? So he falls asleep. Yes, it shows he was tired too, but I think this is also part of the testing of faith. So it says, Now a windstorm came down on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and they were filling with water, and they were in jeopardy. So that's so here's the trial. This, this is the thing. How are they going to exercise faith in that Jesus is with them? And he said they're going to get to the other side. So if you have faith, right? But this shows you how radical this faith that is needed and necessary for us is being developed. Because if you think about it, I mean, who wouldn't freak out? There, the, a storm came out so it was sudden, and that's often how trials come, very sudden, out of nowhere, blindsided. That's one of Satan's strategies. And in, on the Sea of Galilee, these type of storms are very common because the Sea of Galilee is uh, about 600 feet below sea level, and Mount Hermon, where they get snow, is right um, near there. They get snow, uh, snow-capped mountains there, and Often the, the heat and the cold meet in that area. The Mediterranean would be just west of there, and the winds would come in from that direction. And so it can be completely glassy one moment. Next thing you know, raging, raging storm. This was their situation. And, and these were experienced fishermen. They've been through storms before. But like all trials, they prepare us for the next storm. So they're, they're about to die in their mind. And the, the boat's filling with water. That's a bad sign, right? So when you go through storms, you feel like you're sinking. And you feel like this is it. But the, see, this is so good. What do you do in moments like this? You say, Jesus is with me. If God be for me, who can be against me? And then you go to his word. What does his word say? Jesus said we're going to go to the other side. So what was possible for them? It was possible for them to exercise their faith even in the midst of it looking like there's no way we're fully going to die. But it says they were in in jeopardy. They weren't really in jeopardy. Why? Because God said they were going to get to the other side. So look at verse 24. So they came and woke him. And they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. You know what's interesting about that? there's no way they could have been perishing. It looked like they were perishing. How do we know they weren't perishing? Jesus said, I'm with you, we're going to get to the other side. That's all they needed to know. They could have wrote it out. They could have talked to each other and said, hey, you remember Jesus said we're going to get to the other side? Hey, you remember in Isaiah, you remember in Joshua, you remember all these exploits in the Old Testament? Hey, let's let them sleep and let's see what happens. Can you imagine how cool that would have been? Like, you know you're going to make it, but man, it's scary. It's almost like a a ride at Disneyland. Like, it looks scary, but you know you're on a track. You know those things aren't going to hurt you, and it's not real. And the things are real, but they're limited, and they're only real to the extent where they have the ability to develop our faith. So their lack of faith or breakdown of faith came the moment they woke up Jesus. 
Because at this point, they were looking more at the storm than they were at what Jesus said. And then when they do that, they begin to say things that aren't true. Did you know that you will say things that aren't true? When you go through a trial and you begin to get uh, anxiety and emotions worked up and everything, and you won't see things correctly, in those moments you have to go back to the Word of God. That's what our faith is in. Oh, wait, what does the Word of God say? So Jesus arose. This, how, this is how we knew this was the point of lacking in faith. So Jesus arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, the surging of the water. So just like that. Just like that. This shows you the power that Jesus has. This tells us that Jesus can make whatever stop anytime he wants. And this shows, it's showing the disciples, hey, look, I have power over everything. There's nothing that is more powerful. There's nothing that I can't do. So understand that so that when I'm not doing it, you know there's a purpose behind it. Does that make sense? This is huge. So he, he just rebukes the wind and the raging of the water. He, he basically says, stop. But notice this, it says, and they ceased and there was calm. Now here's an amazing miracle. So this could stop, but if you're familiar with water and lakes and all this, you know the ripples take a long time to stop. But you can stop the wind and you can stop the water going in the boat but the ripple effect of the wind on the water takes a long time for that to stop. But Jesus said, stop. And don't you like that word calm? There is calm. This is what happens when we exercise our faith in God. There's calm. And he says to them, where is your faith? So that was the issue, right? So that's what he was trying to grow in them. But notice this. And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. So that tells us the root of the problem. So the root of the, the problem is now through this miracle and after his teaching, it shows that they did not know and understand and believe that he had power over everything. And this is what God will do in the trials of our life. He'll show us who he is to bring about more confidence in him so that whatever situation we go through, we can exercise our faith in him. Last week, after service, I was talking to Richard back there, the red shirt Richard. There's two Richards back there. but and We were talking about faith. And uh, he said something really uh, interesting. We're talking about how a wild horse is broken. So a wild horse, rebellious, kicking against uh, anybody riding it or being tamed and just think about all the energy and difficulty and just how wild that horse is. And the trainer trying to subdue the horse and try to get the horse to, to listen and to relax and he said something very insightful. He said, you know, 
It's when the horse trusts the trainer. That's when they let the trainer ride them and take care of them. And I thought, wow, Richard, somebody's been reading their Bible and praying. That was really good. But you know, I, I believe in, we are going to have communion and we are finished with the teaching. But I want us to really think about this because I really believe this, this is a message for our church today. That we will have unconditional faith and we will continue to go forward in our faith Many people here today, they may be cruising, they may be stuck, they may be in a rut. You may have gotten to a point where it's just a routine. And God today wants us all to be a people. I believe He's preparing us for what's ahead. And if we keep resisting the opportunities to exercise our faith, we are going to be like the disciples. And you want to hear something really interesting? You can come on up. But check this out. There's another story of the disciples being in a storm that comes after this story. Luke doesn't have it, but in Matthew and Mark it does. But check this out. The next story is the disciples going out by themselves on the water. Not with Jesus in the boat. But Jesus is watching them the whole time. And he comes in the fourth watch at, at, a, at a while. It was like 11 hours they were in a storm. In this storm, they freaked out and cried right away. But they learned. They grew And then the next storm, they are there, and Jesus, they they trusted Jesus was watching them, taking care of them from afar. But they were in in, in the middle of the sea, rowing for probably 11 hours in the storm. Their faith grew. And you know what happened then? Then they got to see Jesus walking on water. That's how Jesus came to the second time. So that's how faith works. It's like if we, we pass this test we grow in our faith to the extent where we begin to see amazing things the amazing things of God and we rejoice in him and we can say with Peter count it all joy in these trials because these trials are doing something and I don't want to stay the same I want to be more like Jesus And no doubt right now there's something, you're stuck in some place in your life and God says it's time to exercise your faith there. It's time for you to go into the promised land and stop going around in the wilderness lacking in faith. It's time to trust me, step forward in faith. I better stop now. Father, we thank you for this time together and as we take communion this morning, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open and sensitive to your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to have the ushers come forward. They're going to pass out the elements. If you all can just stay where you are, be in prayer, um, interact with God, take this time. It's just going to be a short time. 
take this time to do whatever business that you have with the Lord, to confess your sin, to ask Him to show you something, to confess um, your discouragement or whatever it may be, and, and just open yourself up to whatever the Lord will have for you. Hang on to the communion elements, and then we'll take it all together as we finish. We take communion here this morning. It's a reminder of how Jesus surrendered to the Father and the Father's will. How he didn't leave anything for himself. He literally surrendered it all. What Jesus did on the cross was compared to a burnt offering. He gave it all. And that, that's an example. And I really uh, want to encourage you as we take communion this morning, is to encourage you that if you're like that wild horse, you're tired. You're kicking against the goads, resisting. Surrender. Open your heart up to the Lord without reservation. It's one thing that communion helps us to remember to do. Helps us to remember what Jesus did for us and how we can trust him. He demonstrated his love for us. All his acts were selfless for us. Jesus this morning, as we take communion, he's reminding us, as he told his disciples, to do this in remembrance of me. To remember how much I love you. May today be a step of faith of surrender. All of you who are tired, you're weary. Your heart's hurting. This is an opportunity just to lay it all down as a holy living sacrifice. To surrender everything to the Lord. You can trust Him. As we take communion, just remember communion is a symbolic act to where the bread represents Jesus' body and the cup represents Jesus' blood. And as we take it in, we're just acknowledging that we have taken in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This, this, what we're doing is for believers. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, this is for you. If you're not a believer, you can become a believer now by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're not willing to do that, then that's okay. But I'd recommend not taking communion. Because taking communion is saying, I've done that. And we're remembering that. And we're accepting that. And so this bread, this cup, they represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ.
Jesus gave it all. All to him we owe. Let's partake of the bread together. And the cup. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand. We're going to sing one last song before we go. And um, we're going to have our prayer team up front. If anybody would like prayer about anything this morning, just take this opportunity to come up and pray before we leave. That God bless you guys. I'm excited for what the Lord is going to do in us and through us to his glory. Let's worship the Lord.